0: And we saw actually the opposite, right? We saw that these are people that actually have very healthy credit portfolios. They've got credit cards. They've got auto loans. They've got a full wallet of credit product. It's not that they can't get it. And so, you know, it's probably a convenience thing or it's probably, you know, the ability to split the payments into a manageable set of equal payments. Whatever it is, there's something different that's drawing people to buy now, pay later or that type of vehicle.
1: Welcome back to How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about lending strategies around the world and across the credit life cycle. Today I'm speaking to Matt Fabian, head of research and consulting for TransUnion in Canada, which means that we were colleagues for 4 years, albeit long distance. Matt has 20 years of experience in the financial services and management consulting, including roles in customer analytics, building client strategy, data analytics and modeling, credit cards, insurance and wealth management. And he's a recognized speaker and contributor to media that includes CBC, BNN, Bloomberg, Globe and Mail. It's that background, plus the fact that he has access to one of the largest consumer credit databases in Canada that make him ideally placed to tell us how COVID has impacted that market. Let's get into it. You've brought out the credit industry indicator. With the five years leading up to COVID, never really breaking out of the 95, 105 band, or very rarely, and then suddenly hitting 64 in peak COVID. Do you want to talk a bit about what the credit industry indicator is? And then what can we gather from the huge dip and recovery we're seeing? Is that reflective of what's happening?
0: So, you know, the credit industry indicator is something we've been working on for a couple of years, and we've launched it in uh, Canada, the U.S., India, and and in Latin America – Hong Kong and South Africa are coming. And so essentially, we've tried to build a model that identifies consumer credit health, you know, at a market level in a single metric. And we've taken hundreds of, of different credit variables and rolled them up into four key, if you want to call them factors. And we've kind of looked at the, the value chain of credit and said, you know, if you start on one side, you've got demand, you've got you know, how many people are actually looking for credit. Is that going up or down? And then corresponding to that is supply. And so are lenders satisfying the demand or are they restricting it or, you know, are lenders really seeking to grow acquisition despite lower demand? And so they're maybe having to dip into higher risk categories to get those customers so how do those two play off? And then once you have your universe of of consumers that have credit, you know, we look at behaviors and so you know, are they making payments? Are they increasing balances? Are they using credit more? Are they using revolving credit? And what does that mean? And then the final piece obviously is the performance. So is risk going up, is risk going down? Are we seeing higher delinquencies, bankruptcies, that kind of thing? And so each of those is is correlated to one another across many, many variables and they're all interrelated. And so The model's quite complex, and it actually looks to figure out what's driving what and which direction do the arrows go. And then we roll all that up into a single number. So what we've seen in Canada is, you know, Canada was relatively flat for a long time. The last real economic crisis we had, and it was a regional one, but a big one for us, given that we're a, an oil-producing country, was when the, the cost of oil dropped almost, a, I think at some point it hit a negative, uh, around 2015. And so that caused high levels of unemployment in certain regions, our dollar dropped. And so there were you know, several macroeconomic consequences that impacted that. As a result, we started to see quality of credit and the, the credit industry indicators slowly drop Uh, There's a few little spikes down, but nothing major. But it was tilted downward for a little while. It took a while, maybe a year and a half, to recover from that as oil prices rebounded. You know, things like supply and demand kicked back in. There was always sort of a demand for credit, even more in some cases in those areas where, you know, people were losing jobs. But supply had dried up. Putting these oil patch playbooks in, if you want to call it that, where they were building very specific lending restrictions and risk restrictions on those areas, just to be cautious, and so the amount of lending slowed in those regions. It really then flattened out for a couple of years, and, and the government put in very low interest rates for a long period of time. So our our prime rate dropped down to 025 percent, uh, and it's it's really just stayed there since then. And so your monthly payment got cheaper, and so all of a sudden. Credit got a little bit affordable, and we saw sort of a little bit of a rebound in that index. Um, not a lot; it was really I'd call it almost flat. You know, for probably two, three years heading into COVID. Um, right at the tail end of 2019, early 2020, we started to see a little bit of deterioration there. They did raise the interest rate, so cost of debt got a little bit higher. We've had a pretty heated mortgage market in Canada for about three years, where you know prices have grown 30, 40 percent year over year, and so affordability has become quite an issue. Then you know people take on those larger mortgages, that obviously affects the amount of disposable income they have available for covering other expenses, including other debt. And so we did see a little bit of a crunch there. Nothing disastrous. Back in 2018, the government of Canada put a a new regulation and it was called the B20 mortgage rule. And it was really designed for this. So, you know, depending on how much deposit you put on or down payment you put on your home and whether it was insured or not insured, you needed to demonstrate no matter what the interest rate was that you could afford that home or those payments on that home at 2% higher than that. So uh, it was almost like stress testing an individual. And so that was really meant to help uh, be a shock absorber for the the spike in housing. So coming into the you know, COVID around March, um, we had just started to drop lower in the 99, 98 range, and it dropped down to a 64 within you know four months. It's the largest and most severe drop. We, we've modeled this back 10 years. And uh, even when we had, you know, even a bigger oil crisis in 2010 or coming off the global financial crisis, there was a drop, but not to this severity. And I think it has to do with the speed with which COVID and, and the associated lockdown and economic measures were implemented, but also the breadth. It didn't hit a particular region or it didn't hit a particular sector like the banking sector. This was everybody. It was widespread. And, you know, as, as most people would know, wherever you live, Canada had one of the lower unemployment rates coming into COVID. We were at about 6.5 percent. Within four months, we were at 14 And we saw GDP drop. We saw a whole bunch of macroeconomic measures drop that really influenced that. The other thing that happened with lockdowns was there was just no spending. There was nowhere to spend. And 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 since then, kind of coming out of it, we started to see almost the same slope—a very severe recovery. There was a wave two. So in certain provinces and certain areas of Canada, the lockdowns were reinstated to some degree. But since then, we started to see more and more of a reopening of Canada we're not quite to pre-pandemic levels. We're kind of in around 93.5, you know, where we were around 105, as you said, but, uh, you know, it's sloping in the right direction. And, and, you know, we're hoping, barring any kind of fourth wave or, or any big reversal in policy or something, you know, over the next month or two, we'll get very close to where we were pre-pandemic.
1: What's very interesting with this measure and being able to break it down into those four subsectors is that all of them dropped together through yeah. sort of June, July peak COVID. But actually, supply of credit was one of the first to rebound and demand followed now in the more recent months demands, the strongest performing of those as I guess consumers get back to pretty much their normal lives. But early on in the crisis, everybody was concerned and worrying about how would we react and how are people going to take in uncertainty in the future and translate that through into availability of credit. And what we're seeing here is everybody did pull back for a while, but the Canadian lenders seem to have been pretty quick back to supplying credit to the market. Lenders are maybe still a little bit behind pre-pandemic levels, but actually it didn't go nearly as badly as it might have done.
0: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things, especially in Canada, that really were unique. So during the crisis, the government stepped in and provided subsidies to small businesses and, and medium-sized businesses to support workers that were being laid off temporarily by this, and so they were able to maintain their their pay. There were direct subsidies to consumers that had lost employment or had employment severely reduced to cover just daily expenses. So the, the government of Canada spent hundreds and hundreds of, of billions to drive support across Canadians that needed it. And I think that really helped we didn't see bankruptcies or foreclosures or anything like that to, to the extent that people were bracing for. And I think the other thing, lenders in Canada typically don't offer deferrals on products. So like payment holidays or skip payments, things like that. They do them as a one-off, as a marketing thing. It's a one-month, two-month offer, but not to the extent that they did here. And so the, the entire financial community jumped in and offered deferrals across any product and the duration was anywhere from 1 to 6 months depending on the product and depending how you negotiated with your lender obviously those balances still need to get paid so it'll extend that debt but it got people through that tough patch and so yeah there's still elevated household debt and that was the concern coming in that you know people lose their jobs the high high rates of unemployment that we saw now is when this elevated household debt is really going to catch up to people and cause this industry crisis and It didn't happen because of the combination of government subsidies and the lenders being able to jump in and and provide relief. And Canadian consumers, we've noticed, just generally are very resilient. The headlines in a lot of newspapers and business magazines for probably seven years have been Canadians carry the most household debt out of the G7 countries. And you look at the other side of the balance sheet, the amount of wealth Canadian consumers have been accumulating at the same time has been growing at the same rate or faster. The other thing that we noticed was consumer behavior changed, which was really interesting. Some of it was taking the subsidies and doing this. Some of it was taking the payment holiday and doing this. And some of it was just people doing it on their own. But we've seen the largest stockpile of cash in Canadian bank accounts that we've ever seen of just new deposits that came in over COVID. And so there's this big pot of cash that consumers are holding on to right now. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And I think the provision for credit losses that most of the banks had forecast through COVID were relatively high and nothing came to fruition, right? They didn't see the delinquent. In fact, delinquency rates have been dropping. Even when deferrals ran off, as the deferrals expired, we thought, well, though you know, the people taking deferrals are probably the people that need it once they don't have that option anymore we're going to see delinquency rates amongst that population increase and it didn't so it did it's it increased slightly but not to the levels that we had thought and so you know i think lenders looked at that Brennan and they just said no we're ready we're ready to jump back in and you know ourselves from a supply perspective we tighten the reins our you know it was prudent from a risk perspective what we did but we're ready to start to get back out and you know reengage with consumers and lend to be fair it's been the the lower risk consumers that have been engaging a lot we have seen sort of the higher risk tiers the subprime consumers still stay on the sidelines a little bit and i think they did take a little bit of a shock as a result of this you know those are the folks that maybe couldn't get credit we've started doing a survey and we asked them you know why haven't you engaged and a lot of them are still worried about I'll, i'm not sure I'll qualify i'm not sure i want to go and you know tell, get get told i can't get credit and so there's a bit of an education that needs to happen, I think, a little bit of a conversation between the lenders and the consumers. So you're right, demand did increase, but it was one segment. It was the lower risk segment that really engaged. Lenders were all in, and I think now they're waiting for the rest of Canadian consumers to jump in.
1: This is a similar message to what was coming through in the UK, that the biggest protection during COVID was owning a house, where probably prices have just been rising faster and faster since COVID hit. So it wasn't a subprime housing crisis where the security underneath the mortgage was at risk. The security has just become more valuable. Also, if you had the mortgage, you know that's your single biggest monthly expense, and you could get a deferral on that. Whereas if it was your rental, it wasn't so easy. So if you had a house, you could have stockpiled a little bit of savings. You could have paid down some consumer debt that was more expensive. So now you're back on possibly stronger than before, you know, financially, at least in the short term. And maybe that's reflecting somewhat, if I look at your origination numbers, 44% year-over-year growth in mortgage origination. So still a lot of activity happening in mortgages, low-risk product, relatively high income needs. In other markets, things like credit cards, installment loans aren't doing as well, but bank card at 12% is still showing quite a degree of uh, interest. But I do see installment loans slightly down, and maybe that's reflective of those different halves of the market where near prime subprime consumers more likely to take an instalment loan and maybe there's less activity happening there than the mortgage where it's the opposite.
0: Yeah, you're right. Well I mean the one thing we didn't see through COVID was a slowdown in mortgages. And so mortgage origination, as you say, just kept moving along at a at a at a hectic pace. In addition to that, the housing prices in Canada continued to go up. They've they've cooled off in the last, I'd say, quarter and a bit. But by cool off, I mean, instead of 25% year over year, they're at about 8% year over year, which would have been probably an extreme five years ago. But now it seems tame. The fact that demand was still increasing while prices increased. And so, you know, that demand continues. And, And, you know, a couple of things, I think, contribute to that, especially in Canada, where the concentration of workers in Canada are in big cities, I think 90% of the population lives within two hours of the U- US border. And so it's very consolidated into major markets. And so, you know, we see those prices in the big cities like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, kind of those international scale cities that uh, the prices are going up. They're going up everywhere, but not at that rate. It's the big cities that are driving it. I think one of the things that happened with COVID was, you know, behaviorally, we've changed as a society a little bit there was this shift to remote work, right? And a lot of people that had been commuting for years and living in cities to be close to their office found themselves working from home. And all of a sudden, looking at their house that's in Toronto, that is appreciated in value by, you know, over the last five years, maybe two, three, four times. There are people in Toronto, you know, in a home they bought 15 years ago for 300,000, that's now worth over $2 million. You think about the equity in that home and you think that, you know, they really only live there because it's on a subway line or a train line to get to the office, which they don't have to get to anymore. And so they started looking at lifestyle and saying, hey, could I go farther out, get a larger piece of property, maybe in the country or in the suburbs? But if I don't have to worry about the commute, then, you know, why am I here? That's not everyone, But there's enough that did that where we started to see that migration out that, shift in people's attitudes and behaviors towards where they work has had a big influence on the market and how people manage debt as well, because you could sell the house, pay off all your debt or pay down some of your debt and still move into a really nice home outside of the city. As we start to reopen, different companies are mandating back to work. Some companies are keeping more of a flexible schedule. And so I think people are still you know waiting out over the next little while to see exactly what that's going to look like for them. We'll see if that behavior lingers can't speak for everyone. I can speak for myself. I've been home since the pandemic started. And, you know, I've gotten used to this cadence of working from home, our company is going to be a lot more flexible in terms of work hours and and coming in. And so, you know, I would be I'm not going to be but I could easily be one of these people moving farther away on a lake somewhere that's a little bit nicer. And
1: yeah, let's stay on that idea of behaviors and talk a little bit more about spending products. So credit card Obviously, during the lockdown, initially credit cards took a really big hit because their stronghold of travel and entertainment were the ones most heavily locked down and consumers weren't outspending as much. So we saw a big drop off in credit card spend activity. And that coincided with a move towards digital that a few years ago would have helped credit card. But this time it coincided with the arrival of online natives like Buy Now, Pay Later. And I wonder what your thoughts are as we're seeing good signs of a recovery in Canada. Do you think credit cards are going to be able to bounce back to pre-pandemic levels and grow from there? Or is Canada having the same big emergence or big threat uh, coming to credit cards from Buy Now, Pay Later and similar online-only competitors?
0: It's certainly here. And it's certainly something that the lenders and card issuers are talking about more and more. I would say compared to markets like the U.S. and the U.K., Canada is still pretty far behind in the point of sale or buy now, pay later space. We are seeing some of the bigger players come into the market and start to take some share and start to work on it. We did ask consumers, are you aware of buy now, pay later? And it was only, I think, about 10 or 15 percent that were in Canada and a much smaller percentage said they've used it. So it's early days and it's a relatively new phenomenon. It's not new in the fact that point of sale has been available in Canada forever from a retail finance perspective. You could go into a retailer and buy a couch or a TV and have it put on credit. The fact that you can do that for much broader set of categories and, and kind of do it not at the retailer but just as a as a thing is probably new to Canadians. And so that uptake isn't there, but it's certainly something that the Canadian market is aware of. And then we see the impact it's having in the US and in UK and other markets. And I think they're bracing for that reality. What's happening with credit cards right now, You know, as you said, the spending did drop as a result of COVID. Big ticket items like travel, entertainment went down. We haven't seen that bounce back. We have seen spend uh, starting to recover slightly, but still not at the levels it was Previously, and we did see a lot of consumers uh, making larger payments on their card to kind of start to deleverage that card a little bit. Canadian consumers aren't as card heavy. I know you think about a place like uh, I know you know Hong Kong very well, and that market where you know it was very common for people to have five or more cards in their wallet. In Canada, it's about two, and there's a lot of issuers, and so it's a very hyper competitive market already from an origination and acquisition perspective. I think once you add something like a point of sale buy now pay later. It creates this external threat to the market that they're keenly aware of. And they're looking at how they either can adopt that and partner with that or utilize that or compete with it. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see the two things that credit card companies do, right? you can acquire more customers and build your pipeline. When you get a lockdown to the magnitude that we had, an acquisition basically shuts down. And you know when you don't have that acquisition channel to build the pipeline, then you rely on your back book strategies like credit limit increases and balance transfers and things like that to build up your revenue for the year. But when those aren't available to you either, because your risk department says, we can't do that right now, it's COVID, you're really tied. So they did struggle. We are starting to see a lot of those programs starting to Kick back in. We have started to see credit limit increases. So they're getting more active in terms of managing their portfolios. But I think you're right. They are still looking at, well, we're still not seeing spend rates where they are. What else can we do? And then there is, as you say, this looming and inevitable, I think, surge of of buy now, pay later, and POS type financing um, that we're starting to see, but not to the extent that we're seeing in other markets.
1: The credit cards had a perfect storm of things that were difficult during lockdown. But as a bit of a silver lining, that deleveraging that's happened does also mean that they do have quite a lot of available pre-approved credits with customers. So as they think about meeting this underlying demand for instant approvals, instant access to credit, at least they've got these customers who've got these large open to buy on their credit cards. It gives them some leeway to, to fight back. And As you mentioned, the risk never quite materialized. And I'm seeing here, you report your delinquencies not just as an average across the books, but you've got vintage curves. And we can see even the credit cards opened in 2020 are performing within the historical range, well, right on the historical level. So no extra risk. And that was the other big concern. Maybe lost within all the averages are going to be these pockets of consumers who's opening a credit card or a loan in, in COVID maybe most of them would be low risk, but surely we're going to take on risk we don't understand. And actually looking at this, seeing it as a vintage laid out, you're seeing that even those accounts open during COVID are are not performing any worse than those open over the last four or five years. So credit card issuers can look at that and say, well, we had this perfect storm. our High revenue market segments were closed. Spend was locked down. The rewards we normally give, you know, air miles became irrelevant for a few years, so it became harder to compete. But risk-wise, our book stood up and we have this capital in the market. So now if they can think of a way to engage the customers who they do have a relationship with, they're not starting from zeros.
0: So. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The other thing that's interesting is we just did a quick study. Again, we don't have a huge sample in Canada on buy now, pay later or point of sale, but we did look at volume of inquiries and some other things around point of sale financing to try and get an early read of the market and look at those consumers to see you know, what does their wallet look like and do a little myth busting. And I think perception was, well, the people that are going to be drawn to POS financing are probably higher risk, don't qualify for credit, probably younger impulse buy kind of stuff. And we saw actually the opposite, right? We saw that these are people that actually have very healthy credit portfolios. They've got credit cards. They've got auto loans. They've got a full wallet of credit product. It's not that they can't get it. And so, you know, it's probably a convenience thing, or it's probably, you know, the ability to split the payments into a manageable set of equal payments, whatever it is. There's something different that's drawing people to that type of vehicle. But the other thing from a credit card perspective that we did notice is, and we've, we've seen this in the US in a study that they've just recently did was that the people that are utilizing buy now, pay later, or point of sale financing, we haven't seen that happen at the expense of credit card balances. So we've still seen the same amount of balance and spend on their credit cards while they're engaging in, in POS. You know, that's also good news to a credit card issuer because it's not an or, it could be an and.
1: We, we should also be reading those. I guess, in the context of disappearing cash. And so all forms of non-cash transactions should be able to increase together. We've spoken in depth on, on credit cards and mortgages. Maybe we can just shoot through some of the other major product categories and get a, a sense of where they are.
0: They're... Really, five main categories in Canada. There's a few others, student loans I won't talk about, but uh, and, and some other smaller loans that we won't talk about. But just briefly, you know, the the auto loan or the auto financing sector in Canada has been relatively healthy. We saw this pent up demand coming out of COVID, obviously with people not being able to get onto lots and buy cars. And once that demand was released, we saw a huge surge in in volume of vehicle sales, which translated into a large volume of auto loans. That demand has since been satisfied. Now what we're seeing is a little bit of an acquisition drop-off, not because of demand, but because of supply, right? We're seeing because of the chip shortages globally, we've, we're seeing a lot of uh, car lots sitting empty, and we've seen a shift towards luxury vehicles, trucks, you know, that's where chips are going. And so We have seen the average price of the vehicle and therefore the average auto loan go up.
1: And that's one of those ones that's a bit counterintuitive to the economic theory where normally in a global crisis, you wouldn't expect demand for new vehicles to increase. But we saw that in the UK as well. And because this was an underlying health issue, consumers wanted to move away from public transport. And despite the fact you're in a major financial recession, Demand for for cars went up
0: and discretionary spend too, right? I'm not going on that twenty five thousand dollar vacation to Australia this year. I'll get a new car.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Luxuries where you can find them. It's been a really prolonged period at home, and as you say, certain luxury items have been off the chart. So people have made savings and reassigning them where they can.
0: Yeah, the one product you talked about earlier, installment loans or personal loans. It's been an interesting shift in the industry over the past few years in Canada. We've seen this emergence, I'd say in the last six years of subprime lenders coming in and offering small personal loans to really develop the underserved or credit uh, invisible portion of the Canadian market. And some of them have really been able to take a strong foothold and really build up a you know, sizable business. And they're making more of a dent, right? Where they were probably 1% of the overall asset base of outstanding personal loans. They're now up into you know the 15, 18%, 20% range. In the US, we saw them go coming out of 2010 from 8% to 32%. So not as drastic uh, market share grab in Canada, but I mean, it's still growing. And what's happened is we've seen essentially this bifurcation of the market. We've seen this emergence of smaller column fintechs, if you want, or alternative lenders that are really catering to pockets of the market that the larger banks either don't want to or don't have the capability to serve as effectively and they're building a really strong foothold there. Whereas we're seeing the banks seeing this and saying, well, we got to get back into that personal loan business. So they're coming back. So that personal loan sector is starting to grow. We did see it drop off you know, through COVID. Whereas where people were taking personal loans, we saw larger size loans. So lenders were, were lending less in terms of volume, but willing to lend more in terms of amount.
1: Which mirrors the UK experience quite closely. where. We did see an uptick in higher value, lower risk loans for things like household improvements alongside people being stuck in their homes for a long time. But then what we saw was the more day-to-day personal loans were far more reactive to how open the economy was. So they dropped much further when we locked down and recovered much quicker when the economy opened. But we needed to be able to travel on holiday or there needed to be stores open for people to go to. So those smaller value loans were very spiky.
0: And then the the final product that I'll touch on is lines of credit. Interesting, because lines of credit are typically loyalty style lending. So the big banks that offer lines of credit, they don't use it as an acquisition tool. They use it as a cross sell to their very best customers. They'll talk to you about, you know, why don't you take out a line of credit for renovation or whatever, a rainy day, you need an emergency repair on your roof, whatever it is, right? And so. Because those conversations happened less during COVID, we saw a huge drop-off. Where we did see high growth was the lines of credit that were tied to home equity. It's a secured line of credit using your home as the security. We did see a huge increase there. And I think same reasons that you just mentioned, you're looking at, well, I'm home, I'm not going anywhere. So now's the time for home renovation. So similar to installment loans, we saw a huge drop off in new acquisition but we did see a slight increase in the size of the loans which were those bigger ticket securitized loans since covid you know I shouldn't say covid's over it's not but you know as the lockdown restrictions have eased and the economy starts to reopen we have seen lines of credit start to take off again from a risk perspective the banks have opened those channels up again i think you know we're expecting to see that return to normal
1: and that seems to be the theme then for Where the market is today, that we hit in the early days of COVID in the O index, one of the worst crises we've had. Huge amount of concern in those early days what's going to happen to house prices, what's going to happen to delinquencies. And if we look at the actual delinquencies, what actually happened during that period, even when we take into account the paying down of payment holidays, delinquency maybe had a little spike here or there, but it's not actually all that different from going in. And now people have weathered the storm pretty well. As you said, it's not over. There's still the risk that lockdowns could reemerge. But for the most part, as we're sitting here, would you say it's fair to say Canada's in the recovery stage getting quite close towards pre-pandemic?
0: Yeah, I would say definitely that's the case. You know, the conversations we have with lenders are they're all in for growth right now and they're looking for it. So the two big things that, that are circulating in the industry right now are where do we find it? Have behaviors changed permanently? And how do we leverage that? Canada's population organically hasn't grown. We're a country that relies a lot on immigration to build jobs, employment, satisfy demand there. That came to a, a standstill through COVID as well as you know, the international flights were shut down. Immigration was largely shut down. And so, as that opens up, banks are looking at ways to engage new Canadians earlier and often Different lenders are better or worse at it. And, and, you know, you come into any country with not a lot of credit history, if at all, in that country. And so the rate that you build up credit becomes slow and, and sometimes a sticking point for some immigrants who have had great credit where they came from. And so banks are trying to figure out how do we ramp that up as an acquisition opportunity. The other big thing on the horizon is interest rates. So interest rates have remained low. Inflation rate's been the highest in Canada that it's been in uh, many, many years, well over the uh, target inflation rate. Right now, the Bank of Canada is saying that they, they consider that transitory. They consider it just a byproduct of coming out of a lockdown and, and sort of the explosion of commerce that's happening. And they expect over the course of the rest of this year and into 2022 that it'll stabilize back down to the rate. But there is concern that if it doesn't, they have to take monetary policy measures, which could be an increase in interest rates. And, you know, consumers that have taken on that additional debt all of a sudden have to pay more for it. We're doing some research on that right now to kind of estimate, you know, what would that look like? I think those are the two things on the horizon, but sure, the overall sentiment for sure, you're you're right on in Canada that reactivation, growth and back to normal.
1: And I know that you've just had your financial services summit, so people might have seen you speaking there. But if anybody wants to find out more from you about these industry numbers or indeed about that research that's ongoing, what's the easiest way for them to get a hold of you?
0: You can always Google TransUnion Canada research and type in TransUnion Consumer Pulse Survey. You'll get access to all of the uh, consumer research that we're doing currently. The surveys are out there across the world. So no matter where you're tuning in from, hopefully there's a region you can look at that research as well. Otherwise, you know, if you go on the TransUnion Canada website under our events, we have uh, quarterly webinars where we're updating the market on, you know, what we're seeing and, and download a lot of our fact sheets and things from previous webinars.
1: Great. Thank you. Uh, Very informative and good to see sort of a pretty stable position, despite what we've all been through. I'll put those links in the show as well.
0: Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thanks. And thank you all for listening. If you're interested in the topic of lending to immigrants, you can learn more in episode 11 of this show, where I speak to Misha Esipov of Nova Credit about just that topic. If you're enjoying the content in general, please remember to subscribe, rate and share the show. And I'll see you next Thursday. This has been... How to Lend Money to Strangers, a podcast about lending strategies around the world and across the credit life cycle.